Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Hey, guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. Just some housekeeping stuff that we do at the top of the show, as we usually do. We got a great response from our first episode on the FBI in Boston. I don't know about anybody else, but I get a real cringy feeling when I read about this intentional corruption, this nastiness. H. Paul Rico sent four men to prison for a murder they knew those four men were innocent of. And it's absolutely crazy. And this is just the stuff that came to light, guys, you know? And this goes from H. Paul Rico to John Conley to John Morris. This was a generational corrupt FBI in our city. And I can't believe it. It actually makes me queasy, right? You had people during this time frame, citizens, going to the FBI for help. But the problem was they were going to the FBI for help against a stable of informants, and nobody knew it. If you take the case of Stevie Rakes, and I know I'm jumping around a little bit here, but that's how much corruption there is. We were covering the case of Eddie Deegan, where all this corruption happened. But just take the case of Stephen Rakes, for example. He was being extorted for his liquor store by Whitey Bulger and Kevin Weeks. And this is not me saying it. This is a fact. They admitted to it in court. They did a gangster move and stole the liquor store from the Rakes family. So the Rakes family know people they go to the FBI. They think they're getting in with John Conley, right? Who's another Southie guy who's going to help them, right? Wrong. John Conley was a paid member of the Winter Hill Gang. And Conley tells Whitey that Rakesy is starting to squawk a little bit. And Whitey's got to go back to Stephen Rakes and tell him to shut his mouth. Rakesy also did the same type of thing with a detective from the Boston police. So... Wherever this all led, right, there was just seemingly no getting away from this level of corruption in Boston. You went to them for help. You were being extorted. And the public servants help the people that are extorting you. It's absolutely insane. It's like a third world dictatorship. I don't know how the FBI still stands today. And I'm usually pretty unified against calling for defunding of any law enforcement agency, but I do think the FBI needs to be investigated thoroughly for all of these things because they say, oh, that happened in the Boston office, but you want to know what? Corruption happens in the Philadelphia office, the LA office. It's systematic, and I'm afraid that's just the way it is. We've dealt with this in Boston since the H. Paul Rico days. And 
up until the Mark Rossetti days as of like 2012. And let me ask you, did the FBI seem very interested in solving the Gardner Museum heist? I didn't think so either. And not to get too far ahead of myself, because this will be coming in one of the next episodes, I think, but remember the Boston Marathon bombing? Marathon Monday has just passed, right? And I know we all remember that horrible day. Well, hours after the bombing, the law enforcement team is all grouped together. They're all working together. And you want to know what? There's two FBI guys in the corner going over video and photographs. And one of the DEA guys gets up and says, hey, what the hell's going on over there? You guys won't share any information. You know who did this. They had a big blow up, almost came to fisticuffs right in the hangar where they had begun investigating the bombings. But there's two FBI guys there who just won't cooperate. So they almost end up in fisticuffs. And it would come out later through Michelle McPhee's book, Mayhem, Unanswered Questions About the Zanayev Brothers, the U.S. Government, and the Boston Bombing. Not to give away the ending of that book, but the U.S. government she refers to as the FBI. They're saying, that Michelle says in this book, or at least infers it, that the older Zanayev was an agent of the FBI the intelligence wing of the FBI. And just hours before the bombings happened, there was a robbery in Cambridge. And in the book, the FBI and the Cambridge police team up to cover up who this individual was. Go back and read her book. I think you'll really like it. But just going through all this corruption all the time, right? It was crazy. They still haven't admitted that Zanayev was an agent of the U.S. government. They were trying to get him to be an informer. And don't forget, he went over to the Middle East and conducted some combat-type operations where he fingered people who were later killed by the Russian FSB. In Michelle's book, she references the fact that he was working as a U.S. intelligence asset. Shocked? Don't be. Happens all the time. And then they'll lie to your face about it the lie to Congress about it. They are wholly unaccountable. During this last episode of corruption, or not the last one, the most recent I know about, the Mark Rossetti case here in Boston, 2011-2012, Mass State Police is set up on Rossetti, who's become known as a major heroin trafficker in East Boston. The judge allows them some wiretaps on his phones. And on his phones, they hear conversation between Rossetti and his FBI agent handler, okay? So now the state police go back to the FBI and say, hey, listen, is Mark Rossetti a confidential informant? They don't tell him they have it on tape, but the FBI says, no, no, he isn't. They have him on tape talking to his FBI handler. How do you work like that? How do you work together like that? When one partner is lying right to your face, this guy is a major heroin trafficker and an alleged murderer from my understanding. And the FBI, if they're not protecting him, they're lying about their involvement with him. When will they ever learn a lesson, right? When will they ever learn a lesson 
from the Stevie Rifleman Flemmy days, right? I mean, how many murders did those guys commit while on the books as FBI informants? They never learned the lesson. Stevie Flemmy, Whitey Bulger, John Conley, H. Paul Rico, and they're still lying to their state police counterparts? Like, when does this end? Apparently never. All right, guys, that was my rant, but I want to get back and focused. So let's get back to the H. Paul Rico Deegan case. It's just so egregious. Let me tell you what happened to the innocent defendants in this case, and we'll start with the two who died while in prison, Louis Greco and Henry Tamiello. All right, let's go from there, and then we'll go up through the rest of the 60s, 70s, and 80s history of the sordid FBI involvement in the city of Boston. So Henry Tamiello, his real name is Enrico, and he was involved in La Casa Nostra. He was the underboss of Boston. That's the exact position that Jerry and Julo would hold after Tamiello dies in prison. But Tamiello is a high-ranking member of the Boston Mafia. He reported directly to Raymond Patriarca in Providence, Rhode Island, the headquarters of the mob in New England. And Tamiello was like a founding member of the Patriarca crime family. He was highly respected. And the reason that Joe the Animal Barbosa put him in this jackpot is he had heard that Tamiello would refer to him in a very derogatory manner. Barbosa was part Portuguese and part Italian. And in order to be in La Costa Nostra, you have to be full-blooded Italian. And he had heard that Tamiello referred to him as the N-word and as a half-breed. And he didn't like that. That boiled his blood. Barbosa was trying to be the first non-full-blooded Italian member of La Costa Nostra. And Tamiello and the rest of these guys, and Julo kind of laughed at him behind his back. But he was a hitman for Patriarca. So they were using him like they use everybody. So I think the story that Barbosa spins, and it's a false one, it was a lie. Tamiello is the underboss. And he tells Peter Lamoni, who was also, I believe at that point, a soldier in La Casa Nostra. Tamiello tells Lamoni that he wants Eddie Deegan whacked. And Barbosa is supposedly there at that meeting. That's something that would never happen outside of made members of Casa Nostra. I mean, it just wouldn't. They wouldn't discuss having someone killed with a civilian, basically. But Tamiello gives the contract to Lamoni and says, give it to, I hate to use it, but they use the N-word. And that meant Joe Barbosa. So that's how Barbosa puts both Lamoni and Tamiello in this jackpot. And I know it's confusing, guys. I know there's a lot of moving parts in this. This is why I wanted to kind of break this up into three or so episodes. There's just so much corruption. Sometimes I don't know where to begin or delve off into because it is so confusing. This was from, I don't know, 65 up into 2012 with the FBI here. But all right, to stay on track, Barbosa 
was a tough guy and he was a killer, but he wasn't the sharpest knife in the draw. And as Tamiello, they referred to him as the referee. He made peace between warring mafia factions, Winter Hill factions and all that. So when Tamiello and the rest of the crew get indicted for the murder of Eddie Deegan, which happened in 65, he was actually on trial for another homicide. He was on trial with the godfather, Raymond Patriarca and Jerry Angiulo for killing a bookmaker. So as that trial is going on, he's indicted for this case with Eddie Deegan. They beat the case of the murdered bookie, Patriarca, Angiulo, and Tamiello, but he gets convicted in this case, in the 1965 case, because of Joe Barbosa's testimony. He said he was there at the meeting. He gets the contract from both Tamiello and Lamoni, and they get convicted, and they get sentenced to life, and life in prison in Massachusetts was no cakewalk, whether you were a member of La Casa Nostra or not. This guy had been involved in murders. I don't know how he made his bones. They usually have to kill somebody to get into the organization, right? Blood in, blood out. But he was wholly innocent of this crime. And the FBI put it on him and they knew it. The FBI, for their part, didn't care because they had great headlines. They had just indicted the underboss of the Boston Italian Mafia and some of his henchmen. They were ecstatic, but it was all a lie. So not only was the FBI comfortable with putting men they knew to be innocent in prison, they were happy enough to kill them because Tamiello, Lamoni, Greco, and Cassesio, C-A-S-S-E-S-S-O, they were sentenced to death, guys. Massachusetts had the death penalty. And they were going to go to the electric chair. And the FBI, absolutely ecstatic about it. They didn't care. Those guys go down for the dirt nap after the electric chair. There's just less problems to come up for the FBI. They simply didn't care. Man, it's beyond me. Louis Greco was another of these individuals that had gotten the death penalty for this Eddie Deegan murder. The story I'm going to tell you about Louis Greco is just misery wrapped in evil, I think. What the government did to the Greco family ruined them, killed them, really. So Louis Greco was from Revere, Massachusetts. That is another city just north of Boston. I believe it actually borders Boston. A lot of Italian-Americans there at the time. Still today, there's a lot of Italians in Revere. And Louis Greco just before the outbreak of hostilities in World War II, joined the Army. He was shipped off to the South Pacific and saw a lot of action. I mean, listen to his citations. He had two bronze stars. Two bronze stars, guys. I believe that's one commendation away from the Medal of Honor, the bronze star. Two bronze stars, that's unheard of, and a purple heart. His... Injury, I believe, was to his foot, his ankle. And he had been a boxer before he went into the service. And he completely destroyed his ankle, never to box again. Always kind of walked a bit funny. But in terms of war service, 
This guy was a hero, an absolute American hero, no doubt about it. So Greco comes back to Revere, Massachusetts. He only has a sixth grade education. A lot of people had limited educations back then. And he went to work as an enforcer for La Costa Nostra. They also say he was a repo man for cars. And I think that was a legitimate job, but his real job was an enforcer for the mob. I found no mention of the fact in my research if Greco was actually a made member of La Costa Nostra, but he was in that world, so to speak. He was married and his wife's name was Roberta, and they had a great home life, at least from everything I can see. He loved his wife, faithful to the wife. He had two sons, one son named Edward and one named Lewis Jr. Lewis Jr. was 13 in 1965, and Edward was 11 when Louis Greco went away to prison, and it almost immediately destroyed his family. Roberta started drinking, stopped visiting Louis in prison after about a year. She'd go on these benders and forget to feed the kids and wash her clothes. A short time after that, she brings another man into the house. And Louis Greco sitting in prison is just flabbergasted, but what can he do? So Greco in prison, right? He was known to be an innocent man. Everybody knew it, so nobody really screwed with him. And he was also tough as nails, so he wouldn't really screw with this guy anyway. And he was on death row. Don't forget, they were going to kill this guy. They knew he was innocent, okay? So the family completely falls apart, and Greco ends up serving about 30 years, from 1965 to 95. Yeah, that's 30 years. He does 30 years and dies in prison in 1995. I don't think anybody in this crew got out of jail until about 1997, when Governor Weld gave Joe Salvati a commutation. And then the case just started to really fall apart. That was due in large part to a local reporter by the name of Dan Ray, who did a lot on the case of Joe Salvati, who was a co-defendant here of Louis Greco. Salvati got out in 1997, so he did more than 30 years. Both Greco and Henry Tamiello died in the joint, you know? They were innocent. They just were. They were involved in the rackets. I get it. And you take that on a little bit. But imagine that the FBI going out of their way, not only to just not help you, but go out of their way to harm you, to put you in prison, actually put you on death row. That's what the American FBI did. They put these guys on death row, hoping that they'd go up in smoke pretty soon. But let me get back to Greco's family. By 1995, things weren't great. Roberta had a massive drinking problem and had basically abused those kids. The kids just went down the drain. Edward, who was 11 in 1965 when dad left for prison, developed a hard drug, both cocaine and heroin addiction. And Louis, who was 13 when Louis Greco went to prison, and it's just kind of hard to say, in 1995, when Louis Greco Sr. died in prison, Louis Greco Jr. drank Drano and died. And that has to be one of the most painful deaths out there. It was shortly after Dad died. 
Junior comes along and chugs some Drano, right? Point your fingers at the FBI on that one as well, because they did that to that kid. So Edward keeps muddling along, and I don't think Roberta was doing much better. I think she ended up shaking her drinking problem, but Edward Greco did not. And there ended up being a civil trial, and I know I had mentioned, I believe it was in the first episode in this series, that there was over $100 million settlement from the United States government to these families, these four families. And Roberta was acting as the estate of Louis Greco, but she had asked the judge in the civil trial, you know, the son, the remaining son, Edward, was due some money. And she asked the judge, Your Honor, please do not give my son any lump sum payment of money because he's a drug addict and that will kill him in short order. Well, Judge Gertner did not listen to Roberta Greco and a check came through for Edward Greco for $250,000. And under a week later, Edward Greco dies by overdose. I believe it was in New Orleans and the kid had battled. He'd been in prison but he had gotten clean for a while, but now he gets this quarter million dollars in the mail. Boom, it goes right into his arm and he keels over dead. The mother had told the judge, don't give him a lump sum payment. I mean, it sounds like this whole case is just cursed. It's crazy. So before awarding this money to the defendants, Judge Gertner stated, you know, in her finding that Dennis Condon, H. Paul Rico, John Conley, and Supervisory Special Agent John Morris had deliberately and intentionally withheld exculpatory evidence that led to the conviction of these four innocent men, two of which died in the joint. Can you imagine that? And what kind of fries my nose, as Mayor Menino of Boston used to say, John Morris. John Conley's boss and at one time co-worker of H. Paul Rico was still employed with the FBI. Can you imagine that? It's just so breathtakingly corrupt. And I know they needed John Morris to testify against John Conley and later Whitey Bulger, right? But you don't fire him. You don't take his pension. I guess he wouldn't testify at that point, right? But then they put him, John Morris, Corrupt as the day is long, teaching recruits at the FBI Academy. Okay, guys, so I know I mentioned Joe Salvati a little bit. He was released from prison. He may be the most tragic story in all of this, but he was released in 1997 after a yeoman's effort by Dan Ray, and I believe he was with WBZ. And I believe Dan Ray's attraction to this case, specifically Joe Salvati, was the fact that he was innocent. They were all innocent, I believe, right? But Salvati more so because he wasn't involved in the rackets. He only happened to have an Italian surname. And Joe Salvati had borrowed some money off a friendly neighborhood bookie that was ultimately taken over by Barbosa. He had borrowed, I think it was 400 bucks Back in those days, in 1965, that was about $3,600. 
So it was a moderately large loan, but I think what really got under Barbosa's skin, when Barbosa took over this operation, the loan sharking operation, from Salvati's friendly bookie or money lender, whomever that was, Barbosa takes it over, and now he wants all old debts repaid immediately in full. Joe Salvati was a working stiff, and he had just gotten married. He didn't have the dough on hand. So they send a leg breaker down, and I don't know who it was, but Salvati takes a baseball bat from him and kind of disrespects the guy. So the guy comes down looking for a street beef. Salvati gives him one, disarms him, and basically tells him to go get his shine box, you dig? So when Barbosa got an opportunity to throw this guy under the bus, he did so. He did so in an effort to save his best friend, who is believed to have pulled the trigger in this case, which was Vinny the Bear Flemmy, right? Salvati was 34 years old when he went to prison. He was a truck driver with four kids. Imagine that. And he goes to prison. He thinks this is going to get straightened out. The whole Justice Department, the whole FBI is against him. He doesn't even know this is a done deal and he's never getting out. If the FBI had their way, they never would have got out of prison. For the 29 years that Salvati served in prison, he wrote his wife a little love note every week and she kept them in a shoebox all 29 years worth and she still has them today. And he got out in 97 and the settlement didn't come through until, geez, what, a decade later, right? And this guy gave his whole life, right? He's gone. It's gone, right? All his prime earning years. And it's just crazy. He ended up getting about $25, 26000000 million of that $100 million settlement. But, man, the government were such a-holes in this case. They appealed the verdict instead of just paying the money out. And their theory was the federal government was not required to assist in a state murder prosecution. This ended up being a state case, although the FBI investigated it, right? And that can happen. That's legal. But they had no requirement. That was their legal justification. The Federal Bureau of Investigation had no legal requirement to assist in a state case. And I guess the government has to say something. But my God, why even appeal the verdict? The verdict was upheld, I think, for every penny. So you just look bad. This whole thing just looks so corrupt. Even the appeal, the appeal of the award seemed corrupt to me, right? They were hoping these guys died. That's what I think. They were hoping they all died and went away. Judge Gertner went on to excoriate the FBI in open court. At one point, she said, quite frankly, the government's position in this case is simply absurd. So she was basically telling the lawyers, get it together, settle it, and end this thing. That's what she was saying. All right, so that leaves Peter Lamoni to be discussed here. Lamoni was in La Costa Nostra in the Boston faction. And somehow Barbosa wanted to put him in this jackpot. It said that Lamoni owed Barbosa $200, kind of like in the same vein that Salvati owed him money. But 
$200 in 1965 would be worth about $1,800 today. So I don't know. There's also a theory, and I've heard Howie Carr say this, a local journalist, that in 1966, when Bob Bosa was in jail trying to make bail, two of his henchmen were carrying or in a place where there was like 80 grand. And the mob, some mob soldiers from the North End, conspired against Bob Bosa and knew this money was going to be in a certain location. They send out two soldiers. They kill two of Bob Bosa's guys and steal the money. Didn't even have the courtesy to bail him out of prison. So he was looking to put these guys in prison. He had a real hair across his buttocks for what they called in town. In town is lingo describing the Boston faction. And it was said that Bob Bosa at that time went to the man, Raymond Patriarca, to straighten this out. And he didn't like the response he got. He was not Italian. He was not a made man. And these guys in the North End were. So he got the short end of the stick. But he got some revenge on Peter Lamoni by putting him in this jackpot. I believe Lamoni was a soldier at that point, and he ends up serving almost 30 years, right? And he gets out, and he goes right back to family business, so to speak. He came out, and he was appointed consigliere, like a counselor, that's what that means, of the Boston Mafia, and he'd later become godfather of the Boston Mafia. They still report to Providence, but he was the boss of Boston. And he died, I believe, in 2017, and he was 83 years old. And I don't know why they called him Crazy Horse. That would be an interesting story. But Crazy Horse got out with about $26 million after the government finally did the right thing in this case, not by their own choosing. Believe me, they wouldn't have paid a dime if they didn't have to. Man, it's just crazy. And honestly, to look at the FBI in this light, it hurts me. I'm a patriot, right? And I look at what they do. I don't know how they're still in business. I don't know how the FBI continued after that. After what they did to these guys in the Teddy Deegan thing, H. Paul Rico said in front of Congress, one of the congressmen asked him, do you have any remorse over what you've done? And he's standing there. H. Paul Rico says, what do you want from me, tears? And the whole room is just in stunned silence. Yeah, we wanted some tears over what you did here. Man, it's corruption after corruption with these guys. I don't know how this still organized, still in business, the FBI. And it got worse. We all know what happened with Whitey Bulger and John Conley. And we're going to get to that in the next episode. I'm going to wrap this one up and I'll tell you what happened to Joe Barbosa and the FBI agents involved. So H. Paul Rico would continue his felonious activities and would end up having the distinction of being the first FBI agent to help set up a homicide on behalf of organized crime. That's his legacy. But we're going to get on to that next time, guys. That's all I have for you right now. 
Sometimes I rant on this case. I'm sorry, but damn, it is corrupt. I don't know how the FBI continued after this. It's just beyond me. But that's all I have for you right now. I'll get on to the next one, and I'll see you on the flip side. All right, guys? 